I'm Bert Cohen. Trump and the right wing may still be in power, but with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig- dig- dignity of man. No question, one of the most valuable and unique aspects of what America is, is the wall of separation between church and state. This treasured tradition ensures both freedom of religion and freedom from the imposition of religion on the citizens. And it's interesting that over the years, countries that have state religions like France and Italy have seen religious participation diminish greatly while With our long-established religious freedom, Americans have become more religious as they voluntarily brought church attendance and religious teachings into their lives. But as America prides itself on being the land of the free, of course, of course, no public funds may be used for religious schools. Protestants, Catholic, Jews, Muslims, Hindu, or no religion at all have all enjoyed equal protection. How could the state possibly use tax dollars for any such institution? The president is long for such protection, but the new right-wing, highly politicized Supreme Court recently issued a rather stunning decision that gives uh, support to a Montana law allowing the use of public money for religious school tuition. Americans dedicated to conserving that traditional wall of separation are, of course, dismayed by this radical turn. How much of an erosion of our previously protected freedoms is this? How seriously does it corrupt the foundational principle of church-state separation? How radical a departure is it? Well, I'm pleased today uh, with us to shed light on this historic decision by the Supreme Court is Rob Boston, Senior Advisor at Americans United for Separation of Church and State and editor of Church and State, their monthly membership magazine. Rob, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, Rob has worked at Americans United since 1987. He's the author of four books, Close Encounters with the Religious Right, Journeys into the Twilight Zone of Religion and Politics, The Most Dangerous Man in America, question mark, Pat Robertson and the Rise of the Christian Coalition, why the religious right is wrong about separation of church and state, and most recently, Taking Liberties, Why Religious Freedom Doesn't Give You the Right to Tell Other People What to Do. Well, thanks again for being with us. Let's, let's start the discussion by defining terms. What, what do we mean by separation of church and state? That's a good question. I think when we talk about separation of church and state, what we really mean is that the, the state does not have an opinion, or an official theology. The government ought to be neutral on questions of theology and and religion and allow people to to sort these things out for themselves. At the same time, I think the separation of church and state gives religious organizations a grand measure of freedom to determine their own internal policies without interference from the government. So, you know, it's, it's more than just 
not having an official state church like they have in England or some other countries. It, it means more than that. It also means that the state really isn't intervening in religious matters, which really belong to each individual to sort out according to his or her conscience. I remember a quote uh, attributed to, to Jesus of Nazareth. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. How is this Supreme Court differed from precedents regarding the place of religion in our public sphere? Yes, and this Supreme Court has uh, taken a very conservative uh, approach. Uh, some might say a very narrow definition of separation of church and state, and it's really applying that in, in a lot of different uh, situations. And what we're seeing is is the erosion, if not the outright overturning, of some long-standing precedents in this country. It, it really is quite shocking. But I, you know, I should point out that this this isn't just something that started a few years ago. True. This was a, a coordinated effort by President Reagan and then first George Bush and the second George Bush and now Donald Trump. And all these Republican presidents over the past few years have uh, put just, uh, tended to put justices on the court, court, the Supreme Court, who have this very narrow interpretation and sometimes even outright hostility yeah. toward the concept of separation of church and state. Some might say some even have hostility toward the Constitution as a whole. And our current president doesn't read anything. He's quite open about that. But... People on the religious right always cite the fact that the phrase separation of church and state or a wall of separation between church and state appears nowhere in the Constitution. I've also read a recent Washington Post article that, quote, it's a high fence of separation between church and state, which, according to this article, existed from approximately the mid-1940s through the mid-1980s, when, obviously, Reagan came in and started attacking it. What is the historic reality? Again, it's not in the Constitution. So what is the historic reality of this basis, foundational uh, understanding that we have of separation of church and state? Right. Well, you have to remember that the founding of the American government in the post-revolutionary era was remarkable in many ways, but one of the things that was consciously decided was that there would be a division between religion and government, between church and state. Now, I'm not aware that that had ever really been done before in, in history to the extent that, that we did it here. And the reason that that was done was you had key founders like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and others who knew what the combination of church and state had done to European nations, uh, the centuries of war and violence and, and so on. They wanted to avoid that here. They also knew, from looking at experiences in the colonies, later the states, that some of them did have official churches and did have established churches, and people were required to pay taxes to support those churches, yeah. whether they belonged to them or not. So they wanted to put a stop to that, and that's you know their, their understanding of separation of church and state, which is a phrase, I should point out, that was used by both Jefferson and, actually, more importantly, by James Madison. James Madison is the author of the Constitution, of one of the primary authors of the First Amendment, uh, and an authoritative source, really, to look at when we're examining these questions. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are talking about the current Supreme Court and their erosion, uh, if not overturning, of the Tradition of Separation of Church and State. Our guest is uh, Rob Boston, Senior Advisor at Americans United of Separ for Separation of Church and State. 
some of our listeners are lawyers, but I imagine most are not. Please tell us about the Supreme Court decision in the Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue case. What does it yes, mean? Yes, this is a, a very disturbing ruling, actually. Uh, the Supreme Court should lay a little groundwork here. I'm not an attorney myself, but we have a lot of attorneys on our staff, and Good. I've been following these issues for decades. And The Supreme Court back in the early 2000s upheld voucher plans. They upheld a voucher plan in the state of Ohio. Now, they, they ruled that this was okay because allegedly it, it's private choice. You know, you can choose to send your child to a public school or choose to send your child to a, a religious school or you know, other types of programs with these vouchers. But of course, the vouchers really end up paying mainly for private religious education. But the court upheld that plan and since then has been uh, sort of refining that decision and interpreting it in ways that are, that are I, I think, incorrect and, and, and disturbing. Uh, most recently in this Espinoza ruling, the court held that if the state has a voucher plan, it is required to allow religious schools to participate in that plan. Now, the court didn't say states must have voucher plans, only that if they do have them, it must include religious schools. Now, on its face, that doesn't sound so strange because, as a practical matter, the voucher plans always include religious schools because most hmm. private True. schools are religious in nature, so they're included. But what the court did in the process of making this decision was it greatly weakened state constitutional provisions that exist in about 37 or 38 states that explicitly stated that there could be no taxpayer support for religious institutions. It, it weakened those provisions as they apply to religious schools. So that, that is a, a significant overreach because it's the U.S. Supreme Court basically decimating these state constitutional provisions that provided an extra layer of protection against taxpayer support for religion. But, but there's a whole bunch of precedent, I would think, on the other side. Uh, what is this Supreme Court just uh, ignoring uh, uh, precedent? Well, one of the most frustrating things about the Supreme Court right now is that the justices, the conservative bloc, they try to pretend like they're not overturning precedent, and they'll <sighs> they'll write these decisions in such a way that uh, you know, they'll claim that they're not. But clearly, these decisions cannot be squared with historic rulings dating back to the mid-1940s. In 1947, U.S. Supreme Court handed down an important ruling in a case called Everson v. Board of Education, in which they stated quite clearly, no tax can be uh, assessed uh, on people to pay for religion. And that was a case that, that uh, really strongly supported the idea of separation of church and state and, and the principle that there should be no taxpayer support for religion. Well, you can't reconcile that historic ruling from 1947 with the Espinosa decision. They're just, they're, cla they're clashing, they're in conflict. And unfortunately, right now, uh, Espinosa is the controlling uh, precedent. Oh, interesting times we are in. Yeah. And I, I was in the New Hampshire State Center for quite a while, and the, the issue of vouchers came up again and again and again. And people who were in favor of vouchers argued that, well, shouldn't market forces be put to use, be applied? Why should kids have to go to, and believe it or not, there was a couple of senators who called them government schools. You may have heard this before. I was taken aback. But it's public schools. And, and vouchers, of course, are a key part of the Espinosa case. Um, again, they're designed to use public monies for private institutions. 
What's uh, Americans United's concern with the decision and the possible precedent regarding vouchers as we go forward from this decision? I think one of the biggest concerns we have is that this, aside from the you know, great violence it does to the wall of separation between church and state, is that it is a direct attack on public schools. And, and, and you're right about that phrase, government schools. I, I hear that a lot. That comes from people who are hostile Ugh. to the very, very idea of the government providing services for people. You know, when, when public schools first got started to really take off in the United States in the post-Civil War era, they were called common schools. And the uh, idea was that, uh, uh, you know, you, they, were, they were good for everybody. It was common good. Ninety percent of our children attend public schools right now. Now, private schools have every right to exist, and certainly church, church-run schools uh, have uh, a lot of money, usually, that they can they can pull from because people voluntarily donate to religious groups in this country to the tune of, you know, billions of yeah, dollars yeah. donated voluntarily every year. Uh, so... No one's trying to shut them down, but all we're saying is, look, they, they're private for a reason. They serve a private interest. They do not serve the public. A, a private school doesn't have to admit your child. They can expel your child if they decide for whatever reason. They are, 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 are free from any type of oversight of their curriculum. You know, some of these Christian fundamentalist academies aren't even teaching modern science. They can kick out a student for being LGBTQ. They can fire a teacher for moral offenses. They can do a lot of things public schools can't do. So our argument is that we do not want to move toward a privatized system. That's what some of these people want. Yes. They don't, yes, they don't support the idea of public services. They're hostile to the idea of government doing anything. They want this little, tiny, minimal government that's not doing anything. And, and I would think right now, in the face of the pandemic we're facing, we, we can pretty, pretty see, see pretty clearly how that type of a government simply is not able to meet the needs of a nation of 328 million people. The world's sole remaining superpower cannot get by with a government the size of the city council. So you, know, you, you need to be aware of what the long game is here. The long game for these people is to privatize education at all yes. levels. Yeah, and, and government is the enemy. Didn't Reagan say something about that? And Reagan looks fairly liberal compared to this guy we have there now. But but he was saying government is the problem. Is that wall of separation, as the right argues, and I, I have a hard time calling them conservative because I think they're just radical right, but so be it. The right argues that the wall of separation is a form of discrimination against uh, church schools and religious entities. What's what's your response to that? Yeah, I don't think that argument holds any water. I've certainly heard that a lot over the years. Uh, re- uh, religious schools, as I mentioned a moment ago, have every right to exist. They're they're not regulated seriously by the state. There's very little oversight. They teach things that are, you know, I think actually not in the uh, public interest, but mm-hmm. they have the right to do that. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that they should not be able to do. Uh, in our view, is tap the public purse. I think that we used to have a a kind of a bargain here. And the bargain said, look, religion, you're going to be able to do what you want. We're going to let you alone unless you really, really are doing something completely crazy that openly breaks the law Mm -hmm. and threatens people's lives. We're going to let you alone. And in turn, you're going to pay for your own stuff. You're going to ask your members to support your buildings, your educational programs, pay your clergy salaries. I mean, that's all going to be on you. But somewhere along the line, 
people began to argue that that, that, that bargain wasn't good enough anymore. They wanted uh, something else instead. They wanted to move toward uh, privatization or government support of religion. And unfortunately, we have a Supreme Court right now that is increasingly open to that type of argument, which I think I think it's dangerous. I think it's bad, not just for the state. Ultimately, it's bad for religion, too. Religion should not become dependent on the taxpayer for its support. Religion in the United States has done so well in this country because of the voluntary support it gets from people. Ah. That gives people gives people skin in the game. They've got a stake in it. They have to support their church because nobody else and no government's going to do it for them. Well, if the government starts to support it, then, well, you know, why, yeah. why should you or why should I? It's a good question. Well, one of the... Uh... Shining lights in the current Supreme Court, <clears throat> Justice Clarence Thomas argued that the court's current treatment of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause unduly interferes with the state's ability to support religious activity. So can you explain that? What is that clause and what is his argument? Yes, um, in a nutshell, the First Amendment's religious freedom provisions have two parts, the Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause. The six sixteen words, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. First part of that's establishment. Basically says no uh -huh. establishment of religion. Now, Clarence Thomas has this really bizarre view, which until recently, nobody else on the Supreme Court agreed with him, uh -huh. that, that the Establishment Clause doesn't apply to the states through the 14th Amendment. And therefore, under his rather peculiar legal theory, states are free to not only support religion and advocate for it, but actually establish it. So, you know, the state of New Hampshire could establish a church and I live in Maryland. We could establish Catholicism, since there are a lot of Catholics in this state. You know, and down south, where there's a lot of Baptists, uh, Alabama could become an officially Baptist state. I mean, this is what he thinks. Now, like I said, until recently, he was the only one saying that. But now, suddenly, Justice Gorsuch is agreeing with him. So now there's two justices on the Supreme Court putting forth this, frankly, insane idea yeah. that uh, even the most conservative legal scholars in the country uh, have rejected uh, a long time ago. And that, that really should alarm people, because that is a, um, uh, to, to use a legal term, that is a legal theory that is called whack-doodle. <laughs> I could think of other words, but we can't say them on the radio. <laughs> now, uh, Catherine Frank, law professor at Columbia University, said the majority decision in this Espinosa case reflected an interpretive approach that has been advanced, as you say, by well, as religious right-wingers over the past two decades. She says, quote, this position seeks to frame a state's efforts to maintain a wall of separation between the public and religious entities as a form of discrimination against religious entities. Uh, and it's been suggested that the right is saying this is discrimination, the current law is discriminating unfairly. But, you know, as far as I know, if, if parents want to send their kid to a private school... Uh, there's no tax money for that. How, what about uh, what Professor Frank had to say? Right. Well, that has been a, a legal theory that the right wing has championed for a long time. But I, you know, I have to give them some credit. They have co-opted the language of, this, of, of anti-discrimination, you know, mm. and, and, and used it in this case in a way that's not really applicable. But, you know, there is discrimination in our society, and uh, certainly we, we, we need to face up to that. But discrimination doesn't mean that you have access to taxpayer funding. Now, uh -huh. if you're being denied a, a job or treated differently because of your gender or the color of your skin or your national origin, that's, that's the classic definition of discrimination. 
it does not necessarily encompass access to taxpayer money. So what they're arguing is, mm-hmm. well, if you don't give us taxpayer money, you're discriminating against us. <laughs> and, and again, that, that's just a legal theory that many years ago would have been laughed out of court, but now we have a, a Supreme Court actually embracing it. So it is, it's, it's very alarming, uh, not only because of the, the damage it does to church-state separation, because it has the potential to really undercut a lot of public institutions, which, to be frank, aren't terribly well-funded as it is right now. And if they start losing more of their money to private institutions, it's only going to make that problem worse. And, and Montana, this Espinosa versus uh, Montana, do, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that the ruling overturned a law that had disallowed aid uh, to religious-oriented schools. But that was, was that not discrimination based on religious status? Well, in Montana, they had passed a tax credit, which is basically a, a, a souped-up modern version of a voucher. And uh, the Montana Supreme Court nullified the plan because the money was going to a lot of religious schools. Not all the schools in it were religious, but most of them participating were. Montana Supreme Court, pointing to a provision in its own state constitution, said this program violates this provision, so it it has to go. Now, again, you know, you had conservative groups coming in and saying, well, that's discrimination. You're not giving us access to taxpayer funds, but there is no affirmative right to taxpayer funds for religion. Uh The tradition in America is that religious organizations fund themselves. Uh, after uh, the adoption of the First Amendment, which at the time applied only to the federal government, that became the federal standard. In the post-Civil War era, with the adoption of the 14th Amendment, that was applied to the states as well. So religious groups essentially are arguing discrimination since they're not being funded by the taxpayer, but they're mm. not supposed to be funded by the taxpayer. They are supposed to be funded by the members who believe in their mission. What, what about the? I, I've heard it mentioned that uh, you know if these religious schools, church-oriented schools, or religious-oriented schools, um, are not proselytizing, they're not pushing a religion. They're just offering a different education. I suppose that would bring into question. Uh, uh, shouldn't private schools uh, be allowed to, uh, you know, non-religious private schools be allowed to use taxpayer dollars as well? I sort of answered my own question there. Uh, so it, it, I guess, I think it's okay. I think this is true what you're saying, that a school has to choose between being religious or receiving government benefits. Is that right? Well, I think that's a, a, one of the reasons why we need to not be funneling our tax money to private institutions because it it can create situations like that. Uh, Religious schools should be free to be religious, but they shouldn't get any taxpayer money. Uh Mm -hmm. Now, you know, as a practical matter, the vast majority of private schools in the United States have a religious tie, Mm. whether they're Catholic or conservative Protestant or Jewish. uh, They're they're Islamic. We're getting seen growing number of Islamic schools. Uh, They're religious. So, these voucher plans that have been passed in the states always include religious schools. And what happens is the taxpayer ends up subsidizing not only the propagation of religious ideologies, but also all of the sort of political fallout that accompanies that. Uh-huh. Uh, for example, uh, a lot of the fundamentalist Protestant academies are really anti-gay. They're anti-LGBTQ. 
And not only will they expel students if they find out that they're LGBTQ, they'll fire teachers in that community. And also Mm -hmm. they'll teach things that are, um, you know, kind of disturbing. Uh, And some of them will advocate reparative therapy and, you know, pray away the gay and all these kind of discredited ideas. Now, you know, as much as I I dislike that approach, they can spend their own money on it. (laughs) But now they're, they're expecting the taxpayers to support it. And that is that's really offensive. Well, it is, and one of the things that the the right, and again, I I just can't call them conservative because they're they're not conserving the Constitution. I I don't know. But using public money for birth control has upset many on the religious right. The court decided that Obamacare cannot be used for that anymore. It can't be used for, uh, uh, you know, reproductive rights help. In her dissent, the wonderful... Ruth Ginsburg wrote, Today, for the first time, the court cast totally aside countervailing rights and interest in its zeal to secure religious rights to the nth degree. End of uh, her quote. She was joined by Sonia Sotomayor. And again, uh, Professor Frank at Columbia University said, When they are asked to adjudicate conflicts between religious liberty and other fundamental rights, they've constantly ruled that religious liberty supersedes other rights. Now, what about the the reproductive rights and the d- discrimination there? I mean, if you know, women with more money have rights to uh, uh, reproductive uh, health care, isn't there some discrimination? If uh, you know, isn't that one of the aspects about Obamacare? It's been pretty, pretty controversial on the right. But I wonder if you could uh, talk about that ruling, the Obamacare case, when it comes to uh, uh, reproductive rights. Yes, what's really amazing about this this case and this whole situation is that we're really talking about a fairly minor procedure in the case of religious institutions. First of all, I should back up and state that the birth control mandate excludes ministries and churches and, and other purely religious entities. They don't they don't have to abide by it. The question here is to what extent a business, a small business, uh, a college or a university, a nonprofit, whether they can also deny access, employees access to birth control because the the owner may have a personal objection based on religion, or since the Trump administration came to power, you can also opt out on moral grounds, which is you know what does that mean? That's sweeping. Hmm. Uh, they this case of the Supreme Court dealt actually with the interpretation of some fairly obscure regulatory policies and trying to determine if the Trump administration had the power to interpret these these regulations in the way that they did. And the Supreme Court said that they do. But the practical effect is that a lot of people, women mostly, who work at nonprofits or small businesses or colleges or universities, will lose access to birth control in their health care plan if the owner of the business or the president of the school or wherever it might be decides that he objects to it on religious or moral grounds. And What's really remarkable about that is what other aspect of your health care is subject to some stranger's religious veto? Uh, it, it, it just doesn't happen. Yet the Supreme Court, with this extreme, and I would yeah. say a bizarre interpretation of religious liberty, has carved out this uh, exception for birth control. Uh, and, and overlooking the fact that that is a very important component of modern health care, that it is used by just about everybody at some point in their lives. Mm-hmm. It's ubiquitous. 
uh, it's important, they just throw all that out the window and act as if the rights of the people who are denied access to birth control don't mean anything. But they have a serious claim, too. Boy, I would say that's just so amazing, really. And I, I, I do believe the, correct me again if I'm wrong, the Hobby Lobby case was, I mean, that's a big store that uh, they, again, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't want to support their uh, employees' uh, uh, abilities to, uh, to have uh, reproductive health care. And fill me in on that, if you would, please, me and the Yeah, Hobby Lobby is a case from a couple of years ago involving this chain of craft, store, craft stores. The owners didn't want to support certain types of birth control that they considered to be you know, abortifacients. Uh, they weren't abortifacients, but nevertheless, they didn't, they didn't want that in the plan. Now, Hobby Lobby is a non-publicly traded company, so the Supreme uh-huh. Court ruled in, in cases like that that they, they had the right to, uh, to opt out of the provision in Obamacare that requires no no cost, no pay, birth control. Uh, and, and since then, we've had this kind of fight going on about how far that regulation goes. Uh, who, who else gets to take advantage of that? And as I said a moment ago, mm. the Trump administration has interpreted those regulations very broadly, saying that they, they apply to pretty much a lot of other types of companies. Now, here's the thing about this. This is regulations we're fighting about. So uh, Congress could draft new regulations. Uh, A different president could interpret the regulations differently. All this is being done at the regulatory level. You know, Congress didn't pass any laws that President Trump signed into law here. It's merely how the Department of Health and Human Services is interpreting these statutes. So all that can change if the political situation changes. Well, there are allegedly three co-equal branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And they're, you know, the executive can do stuff, the legislative can do stuff, and, you know, Congress has the ability to make changes in the law, of course. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about the erosion of the historic uh, separation of church and state. Our guest is uh, Rob Boston, Senior Advisor with Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And there must be some website before we go too far for AU. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's real simple. It's au.org. So just au.org, and you can see what we're up to and uh, check out all of our great content there. And we'll get back to that uh, later on. And there was a case uh, called Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania that related to uh, ministerial exemption and the Affordable Care Act, I believe it was. What, what do we know about the Little Sisters of the Poor versus well, Pennsylvania? That was, part of the, yeah, that was part of the case involving birth control that we've been talking about. The Little Sisters of the Poor are an order of nuns, and they they run a chain of nursing homes. So, you know, it's interesting. Their, their involvement in this case, I think, it's deliberate. Uh, right-wing groups interjected them into this case because they're an order of nuns and people are sympathetic and they think, well, nuns don't need birth control. Well, it wasn't the nuns that we're talking about. It was all those employees uh, who work for a very low wage oftentimes in their chain of nursing homes. They're the ones that need reproductive freedom. They're the ones that need birth control. Yet uh, they, they, of course, were refusing to provide that. And ironically, they weren't asked to do it. All, <laughs> all these groups were being asked to do was certify by signing a simple form, telling the federal government, we don't want 
to deal with birth control in our health care plan. And then the federal government would come in and provide it through another avenue. But they wouldn't even sign the form. They said signing the form was a violation of their religious freedom. So it, it really is amazing to me how much time and money and energy we have spent fighting over a simple matter of signing someone's name to a form. But that's where we are right now. Who'd have thunk it? Now, this this court, it's, it's an interesting process, and I think generally throughout American history, it's been a pretty good process. The president uh, makes uh, nominations to the Supreme Court, and with the advice and consent of uh, the U.S. Senate, uh, that's how uh, the justices are chosen. What about the... Uh, the nomination that uh, Barack Obama put in of uh, Merrick Garland and, and, and how this particular Supreme Court, the nine people that are there now, how unique are they and how unique is this court? There have been courts go all over the place. I mean, they used to say, of course, in the 19th century that uh, uh, black people were, what, uh, three-fifths of a full human, something like that. You know, they have made some odd rulings before. But what about this, this particular court? Yes, it's, there's this, I think, myth that's very prominent in our society that somehow the Supreme Court is above the fray. It's not a partisan institution. You know, it's not supposed to be. But in fact, it often is. You know, as you mentioned a moment ago, justices get on the Supreme Court because they're nominated by the president. They're either confirmed or denied by the Senate. They're usually confirmed. In this case, during the Trump years, since there has been Republican control of the Senate, they've been able to just railroad these people through. And it's not just the U.S. Supreme Court. It's the lower yes, federal yes. courts as well. They've been just putting judges on there, many of whom, quite frankly, are not qualified, who have very thin resumes, and they've just railroaded them through. Yeah. So no matter what happens in November, I think that that's, that's a, a lasting issue that this country is going to be grappling with for many decades to come, because the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts have been radicalized by people who do have a partisan agenda here. They're not above the fray. Now, you know, that isn't to say that, that sometimes uh, justices don't surprise you, because we did see some of that this term. A couple of the extremely conservative justices did break, break ranks uh, a few times with prevailing right-wing ideology and did issue some rulings that even Trump was attacking. But in the main, certainly in the area of separation of church and state that we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. They have been doctrinaire, extremely far to the right, and they have been dis discarding precedent, precedent yes. and reshaping the law in very disturbing ways. And that that's, again, part of the long game that the right wing has had for a long time. They know the power often does rest in the courts. You know, the president can try to do all this stuff, and Congress can pass all these bills. Mm -hmm. But if the Supreme Court strikes them down, it doesn't matter. So the right wing has focused on courts for a long time, and yes. we're seeing that paying off for them. Well, as uh, Mitch McConnell, the Grim Reaper, he calls himself, has, has been very clear that the long game, as you describe it, is to pack the courts with right wing, uh, you know, ju uh, justices and judges. And that's the way they want to make real uh, change in America and affect so many people's lives. And we're talking about uh, separation of church and state. And you know, to, to have 
you know, these these radical religious right extreme people uh, deciding cases and deciding laws all up and down the court system. Yeah, I, I wish people would think about that when more when they vote for president. Uh, you know, because uh, uh, it's not just uh, well, would this be a nice person to have a beer with? Uh, it's about our rights as Americans, for sure. And and what about uh, Obama's uh, nominee? I wonder. I mean, he's not on there, uh, Merrick Garland. But what 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 was so was that particularly egregious when it comes to uh, protecting uh, the wall of separation between church and state? Do you think, or, or don't we really know? Well, that that really was an egregious situation because remember, they wouldn't even give him a vote. They would not even consider him now. Mitch McConnell at the time tried to argue, well, you, you can't make an appointment within a year of an election. Now, of course, there's nothing in the Constitution or the laws of this country that says anything like that. It was not even an informal rule in the Senate. It's patently ridiculous. And I guarantee you, if a seat were to open up tomorrow yeah. or next week, the Republicans would immediately start trying to ram somebody through, even though we're just a few months from an election. They're, they're complete hypocrites in this matter. They simply did not want Merrick Garland to be on the court right. because they knew that, that was going to be a, uh, a definitive swing seat. So they just shut down the whole process. Uh, and then, of course, you know you know what happened. Trump won the election, and they immediately filled that seat with an ultra-conservative. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, people need to be thinking about that. Now, we don't have elected federal judges in this country. Right. But, in a sense, when you are electing a president, and to some extent when you are electing U.S. senators, you are, in a sense— electing judges, because those people that you have elected are going to pick the judges. And it's, it's interesting. You may remember um, Supreme Court Justice David Souter, who, yes. of course, was a New Hampshire native. Indeed. Uh, Souter was an interesting case because he was something of a misstep. Uh, first, George Bush put him on the court. John Sununu had you know, asserted that this man was going to be very conservative, and he wasn't. Right. It, it turned out to be a big surprise and much more liberal than they would have liked. Yeah, I know. Since then, they have been very careful. Republican presidents have been very careful to absolutely vet anybody that they're considering for the U.S. Supreme Court and make sure that they're going to be a doctrinaire conservative. They don't want uh, any more mistakes like that. So that that uh, nomination of Justice Souter, who I think was only on the court for about 10 years, uh, and that's a shame because I always admired his uh, writings. Yeah. Uh, he, his uh, situation, his nomination, was... I think, a bit of a turning point. It further radicalized uh, the process. Huh, that's interesting. Always something unexpected in history, that is for sure. And I, I do think it's it's interesting, uh, disturbing, that two of the court's more right-wing justices, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, have made clear they would go even further than the majority to advance so-called religious rights at the state level. W what do we know about their views on this? Well, what concerns me about their views is that they might actually move us toward a system whereby if the government is funding a secular program, it then is required to fund religious ones that are duplicating that program. Like, if you read the opinion in the Espinoza ruling, Justice Chief Justice Roberts says, no state is required to have a voucher plan, but if you do have one, you've got to include religious schools. Well, that's bad enough. But the next step would be to say, States are required to uh. fund religious education. Because they're funding public schools, they are now required to fund religious education as well alongside public education. Now, imagine uh, the fallout from something like that. You're just opening up the taxpayer 
uh, coffers to all these different religious organizations. Some of them that don't even have schools right now will probably start to open them. We see a severe lack of funding for our public schools, which are already struggling in many parts of the country. That's the step that some of the more radical members of the Supreme Court and their allies in the religious right are, are moving toward a day where you, you're not only uh, compelled to have voucher plans, mm. to include religious schools and voucher plans, but you're compelled to set up voucher plans, to establish them, even if you people don't want them. How people can see that as conservative is just beyond my ability to, as they say, wrap my head around it. I just... There's just nothing conservative about that at all. And another decision was the Trinity Lutheran versus Comer decision. Was that also in in this particular court? And and that was what about the effects of that decision? Yes, that was that case was a few years ago, and it, it kind of laid the groundwork for some of the rulings we're seeing now about funding. Uh, in that case, a, a a church in Missouri wanted to get government money to resurface its playground. Now. I have to admit, you know, the right wing, they're, they're, they're very good at picking sympathetic cases. You know, nobody wants little kids to fall down and skin their knees. So they were going to put a, a rubber surface right. over this playground. But again, in Missouri had a provision in a state constitution said very clearly, no public support for religion. Mm-hmm. But uh, they went into court and the Supreme Court said, oh, you know, it's okay. You can, you can participate in programs like this. Well, now you could argue that resurfacing a playground provides a secular benefit. But right now we're moving toward a system whereby uh, it doesn't matter if it's a secular benefit or not. It can be explicitly religious. And the Supreme Court is saying you have to give taxpayer funding to those explicitly religious programs. Uh, We've lost a lot of ground in this area of funding, and it's going to take a lot of work to to reverse those in a different political situation. If, If we can do it at all, it's very challenging. It is a challenge, an uphill fight to keep democracy alive, and we actually chose the name for this show well before Trump was elected. Who would have thunk it? The religious right often cites the case of the baker who refused to provide a wedding cake for a ceremony between two men. They insist, the right insists, it's about the baker's religious freedom because that was against the the baking company's religious uh, beliefs. Talk about that, if you would, please. Is that a a legitimate concern that they have, that that the baker's religious feelings would be uh, imposed on by this? We're certainly seeing that argument being raised a lot by the the far right these days. I don't think that it it holds any weight. this baker is not a minister. He's not running a church. He's not running a ministry. He's chosen to enter the secular marketplace with a secular business. And we have laws in this country that state you cannot discriminate in your business. You know, think back in the days when restaurants used to tell African Americans, you're not going to serve you. You can't eat here. And hotels used to uh-huh. tell African Americans, you can't stay in our hotel. You can't come in our business. And there are even, um, some, some businesses and uh, communities that restricted the right of Jewish people to live in certain neighborhoods. We had all these, these discriminatory laws that were wiped out with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now we're seeing people attempting to reestablish some of that discrimination, those discriminatory policies, by calling it religious freedom. And this time it isn't so much African-Americans they're the brunt of this discrimination. It's members of the LGBTQ community. Now, in some states,
states and localities, there are laws explicitly protecting members of the LGBT community from discrimination in the public marketplace. And to my mind, if you are not willing to serve everybody at your secular business, then you probably shouldn't open your doors because you don't have an affirmative right to discriminate and call that religious freedom. Seems logical to me. I I remember before the uh, Civil Rights Act that uh, one could discriminate just because you wanted to. Anybody. And, you know, there's that whole uh, lunch counter thing. You know, if uh, Woolworth, for example, said, uh, yeah, we don't want to serve black people here, we don't have to. It's It seems similar to me. It's just, I, I, I can't believe we are where we are. But there was also, I think it was a different ruling, a seven to two decision on the court that religious schools are exempt from most employment discrimination claims. What is this, and in what ways is it significant? Yes, this was actually another decision that was handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court during this term, and, and uh, the, the case dealt with uh, some religious schools that had fired teachers. In one case, they fired a woman because of her age. In the other case, they fired a woman who was very seriously ill. She had cancer. Now, normally, in just about any other workplace, if you were fired because of your age or because of your health status, you, you would, you'd have a claim yeah. to make there that they can't do that. Now, religious schools and religious entities do get some leeway in this area. I mean, think about it. It just makes sense. You can't require a Catholic church to hire a woman as its priest or a non-Catholic as its priest. So they get what's called a ministerial exception. Uh-huh. But that has been extended to ministers, not to people performing secular functions. These two teachers in these schools were mainly doing secular teaching. They didn't really have a lot of religious duties, but the Supreme Court has decided in this ruling that they should be uh, included in the ministerial exception. So now the, the practical effect of this is people who work in private religious schools uh, are, are losing a lot of the protection they might have had as far as uh, uh. employment. And they, these these religious schools have uh, broader leeway to, to basically fire people for lots of new reasons. Now, you know, if, if you think about that, especially in light of the Espinosa case we've been talking about, mm-hmm. it's a double whammy. These religious schools have great freedom to hire and fire according to their religious views, and they're getting public funding. Yeah. Uh, it, it would be, I think, a lot more, they would have a better argument if they were able to say, well, we want to hire and fire as we see fit, and we're purely private, and we don't want government money. Yeah. But they're demanding government money. So now not only are they demanding government money, but then they're saying, we don't want any of the regulations or, 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 or control that comes with that money. We just want the money. <laughs> Hard not to laugh. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks, uh, with us today to shed light on the uh, erosion of the uh, wall of separation between church and state is Rob Boston, who is with Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And before we go too far, tell us about the work of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. What what did, what, what kind of stuff do you do, and, and is it everywhere? Tell us about uh, Americans United. Yeah, absolutely. We are a national organization with members all across the country. And uh, our, our members are, they run the gamut. You know, they're from the most devout religious believer to the most committed atheist and everything in between. 
So we don't have a particular religious perspective ourselves. We just believe that separation of church and state is good policy for both institutions. And we we work in the courts to the extent that we can to defend separation of church and state in the courts. We have people who are down on Capitol Hill lobbying for that principle or working in state governments to promote the idea of separation to educate lawmakers. And we also mobilize people locally so that uh, they can more effectively approach their city council, their county council, their uh-huh. state government, and, and, and you know, as, as constituents, speak up for the separation of church and state. Because we're based in Washington, D.C., but we want to have an impact nationwide. So we try to mobilize people at the local level so they can speak out. Think globally, act locally. Always true. Now, America's founders, in their wisdom, uh, back in the time of the Enlightenment, created three co-equal branches of government. As we said, the executive and legislative, they're quite openly political. That's okay. The court is designed to be somewhat insulated from political pressures. Of course, the presidents who do the appointing are, as we mentioned, often surprised by how their choices come down on issues. This Supreme Court, has it become almost as ideologically predictable as the legislative, as Congress, and the executive? And how Unfortunately, we, we, yes, we are seeing some of that. There are a lot of five-to-four decisions, and you, you know how that breaks down. It doesn't always happen that way. But there's been a good number of those, especially in cases of separation of church and state. Whenever the Supreme Court accepts a church-state case, we just kind of have to shudder at Americans United, because even before the case is argued, we can often predict what the breakdown will be. Now, we don't always know how far it will be, and how, how far will they go. But certainly we, we can see that there's not majority support for the idea of separation of church and state on the court right now. But the interesting thing about that is, is that it, it's close. So, you know, a, a shift in politics, uh, a change in, in direction, things could turn out to be a little bit different. Uh, the, the, the Supreme Court, the one thing about it is the justices, they they serve until they, they don't want to serve anymore, mm-hmm. until they're incapacitated or whatever. So it is a lifetime appointment in most yes. cases. But, you know, there's also uh, a good bit of regular turnover. So things can change. Uh, but folks just need to be aware that the court, as much as people like to think of it as an mm-hmm. institution that is above politics, it, it actually is affected by politics, and we'd be naive not to acknowledge that. And, and so it is. I mean, government, politics, imagine working together and, and being involved with one or the other. And I, I wonder if there's enough public awareness of how these decisions with regard to uh, taking down the wall of separation may really affect people's lives. How might people's lives be affected? If, you know, if they're not uh, part of a church, if they're not in uh, you know, private school, how, how does all this affect the average person? Yes, you know, that's a very good question, and it's one that I, we just need a little more empathy here. Um, let me give you an example. We were talking earlier about the birth control cases and the lack of access. Well, during that, that discussion and that argument, it came to light that the, the number of people that might lose access to birth control under this ruling, it may be 200,000. Know, that was the number that I saw thrown around. Well, in, in the scheme of a country of 328 million people, that's not a huge number. So I think a lot of people are just shrugging it and mm. often thinking, well, I, you know, my, my health care is not going to be affected. That's somebody else's problem. But we have learned, I hope we have learned, due to recent events, that we absolutely must be concerned about the rights and the, 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 the of our neighbor and the ability of our neighbor to 
and our people all around our communities to be safe and to have access to health care and, and to enjoy the um, the things that those of us who are more privileged are enjoying. The one thing I think that we've really lost sight of in this country, I think since the modern the rise of modern conservatism, and like you, I, I don't like to even call it that because I don't consider it to be conservative either. But one of the things that we've, we've lost sight of since the rise of that as a political movement is just looking out for, the, for your neighbor. It's become so highly individualistic and, and me-centered that people have just lost that community spirit. And I think you still see that in a lot of other Western nations. It's been greatly eroded in this country. So, so people need to realize that even if they're not personally affected by a decision that's handed down by the court, chances are that somebody that they know mm. or they work with or they love or that they have some type of connection with is being affected. And if that person's being affected, it's your business. That's true. And, and you know, certainly there are a lot of smaller religions in this country that, uh, you know, we don't want to have a state religion. And I'm reminded by what you were saying of something that uh, Bernie Sanders was saying toward the end of his campaign this year. Fight for somebody you don't know. I don't know if that resonated, but I liked what he had to say quite a bit. You know, care about other people. And that, you know, the COVID-19 thing has really, uh, I think, brought that to the forefront as well. You know, somebody, well, my rights are being affected because I'm not going to wear a mask. Well, you could be spreading it to other people. So it's it's really, it's come more into the fore. This, the decisions recently by this court... Are they, with regard to separation of church and state, are they locked in forever? What can people do? How might they be changed? Well, first of all, no, they're not locked in forever. As much as the Supreme Court likes to pretend that it respects precedent, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. We've been talking about the uh, the case dealing with funding, the Espinoza case. The Supreme Court, uh, although it didn't explicitly state this, clearly overturned a number of cases to reach the decision that it handed down. It had to. So they just, you know, blithely tossed those out the window. So that type of situation can happen on the right. It, it Those decisions can be overturned at some point in the future, too, by a different court. Uh-huh. Now, it would be better. It would be better if we didn't if we didn't have a situation where every few years courts were just reversing precedent and then going back and putting it back and reversing it again and putting it back. We, it would be nice. It'd be nice to have continuity, but we're just not at a point where that's happening right now. Yeah. So, depending on how things shake out politically, that can definitely affect the composition of the court. But more importantly, I think people just need to be aware that we do have a system, still have a system of checks and balances in this country that hasn't hasn't been taken away from us yet. If we don't like what the court is doing, there may be legislative remedies that we can pursue. There's always the possibility of constitutional amendments. I mean, they're not easy to pass, no. but we have passed them. We have done it. We can look at that as a possibility. Uh, and, and there are ways of changing some of those policies at the federal level that I've talked about that are handed down by regulations and executive orders. Those can be reversed. So I don't want people to lose hope because I do think that as bad as things are, we do have the possibility of change if we really want to see it. We just have to keep our eye on that and keep working on it. And also, too, uh, to remember that uh, you should not get discouraged simply because things aren't going your way. 
if you do and you get discouraged to the point where you you drop out, you disengage, right? That just that just allows extremists to come in and yes. fill that vacuum that you've created. So, as challenging as it is, stay stay in the fight. And also, I tell people I give speeches a lot, and I always tell people I, I've said this several times to you tonight: have the long game. Yes. Remember, some of the work you're doing in advancing people's freedoms may not pay off until the next generation. You might not live to see it yourself, but you do the work anyway because it is the right thing to do. Uh, thank you so much. Very, very uh, interesting and hopeful. We are not powerless. The powers that be, the right wing, wants to, us to believe that we are powerless. Oh, they very much want us to believe that we are powerless, but we are not. Uh, so, again, uh, if people want to check out the Americans United for Separation of Church and State website, it is au.org. Is that right? That's right, au.org. Thank you so much, Rob Boston. We are not without hope. When we can, you know, elections are coming up, presidential, congressional elections, they can make a lot of changes there as well. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. And may I say, thank you for your work. Thank you, Bert. All right. Don't man, what I don't need it now. I'm just trying to slap it out of my.